0: Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to John chapter 13, to the passage our friend Kim read for us a moment ago, John chapter 13. As you know by now, perhaps we, we are a faith family that desires to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, which is why we started a series a few weeks back titled Gospel Saturated, and we're asking the question, what do gospel-saturated relationships look like? And if you were with us last week, you know that we said the gospel-saturated relationships look diverse. Uh, That the gospel changes our perspective, it changes how we view people who are different from ourselves so that as the gospel is taken in and as as the gospel is thought through and as the gospel is turned out, suddenly we find ourselves willing and actually eager to cross cultures and to cross subcultures and engage in Christ-exalting relationships with people who are not like us. And so yes, gospel-saturated relationships look diverse. But this evening, as we look at John chapter 13, we're also going to add another feature to that, that gospel-saturated relationships look like humble service. That again, as we take the gospel in and as we begin to think it through, and as we begin to turn the gospel out, we're going to find ourselves serving everyone around us, even those who might not have any love for us. Last week, I was talking with a friend of mine who's been seeking to serve an elderly neighbor for a while now. And he approached her one day in public when he happened to cross paths with her at a grocery store and asked her how she was doing. And she confessed in that moment that she wasn't doing well. Her health has been deteriorating. And as a result, she's not able to do basic chores around her house. And so my friend offered, well, well, could you use some help? I'd be happy to come by and and do some things that you might not be able to do. And at first, she seemed open and she seemed uh, to respond positively. And this encouraged my friend. So he left thinking that he was, it would be okay for him to come to her home and, and help her out. So the next day, he, he knocked on her door, and he was surprised that when she, when she met him, she responded with a, with a surprising animosity. And she said she had no interest in him serving her. In fact, she was offended by the fact that he would even, he would even offer. Yes, she knew that my friend was a Christian and pointed that out as a reason why she did not want His help and my friend turned in that moment and walked away sad. He walked away saddened because in her pride she was refusing help that she so obviously needed. You see, when we talk about gospel-saturated humility, we're talking about a humility that is required not only for you and I to serve people, but a gospel-saturated humility is needed even if you and I are going to be served by people as well. Many times the human heart is too proud to receive the service that it needs. And I think this is apparent anytime we, not only in how people may refuse help from other people, but even more importantly, I think this is evident when we see how often the human heart refuses the service Jesus offers it in the gospel. You see, tonight in John chapter 13, we're looking at a at a famous story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And because it's a famous story, its message is often missed by us. You see, this is one of those stories that we can read and just kind of walk away thinking, okay, Jesus served, uh, we should serve too. And although that's a true statement, right? Nobody's gonna deny that. Jesus served, we should serve too. It is a true statement, but at the same time, it's an insufficient statement. It's an insufficient understanding of this story. It's that type of takeaway from this story is all it succeeds at doing is moralizing something that shouldn't be moralized. You see, the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet isn't to be moralized by us. This story is one to be internalized by us. It's one that, whose the gospel message, as it is illustrated in this story, is to be taken in by us, And it is to be thought through so that it saturates our soul and only then will it be turned out in ways that would honor Jesus and really be a benefit and a help to those around us. And so the message of the story is not to go and humbly serve other people. That's not the primary message of this story. story. The primary message of this story is that in humility, you've got to let yourself be served by Jesus. That's what this story is commuting to, uh, communicating to us, and, and that's what I hope our hearts can grasp as we uh, or grasp as we walk through it. So you consider looking at verse one. The story begins with just this acknowledgement of the Savior's self-awareness. Notice verse one. It says, "We'll read it again." Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart the, from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now. When it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So this story begins with the acknowledgement of the Savior's self-awareness, of what he understood about his mission, and about what he understood as it related to his identity. Let's take first his mission, what Jesus understood about why he came into the world and what he was seeking to do for people like you and I. You'll notice that phrase in verse 1 where it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now if you were to read through the Gospel of John, that you're going to discover multiple references to a coming hour. The first reference to this hour, this moment in time is found in John chapter 2, verse 4 where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Then again in John chapter 7 verse 8, Jesus actually refuses in that moment to go to Jerusalem. And he says, why? Because my time or my hour has not yet fully come. And then later some religious leaders tried to seize Jesus and arrest him. And and we're told in that moment that no one was able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And the idea there is that somebody else is arranging the flow of Jesus's life, that Jesus's life isn't ultimately subject to the whims of other people. His God is in control, or God the Father is in control. And then a similar thing would happen in John chapter 8 verse uh, verse 20, where Jesus says something similar. But by the time you reach John chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples have entered into Jerusalem at the start of Passion Week. And the start of Passion Week was the most holy time in the On the people of Israel's calendar, this was a time of year where a Passover lamb was going to be slain. And the Passover lamb was going to be slain in a way to represent the cleansing of God's people from their sins. So so that's the setting that this story takes place in. And just before we get into John chapter 13, after Jesus and his disciples enter into Jerusalem, we're told in verse 23 of chapter 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time and the reason for my entrance into the world is about to be fulfilled. This is the moment I've been living towards. This is the moment uh, God the Father has been arranging for him and for our good. And so he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now imagine the disciples hanging with Jesus and they hear him say that. You can imagine how excited the disciples got when they hear, okay, Jesus is about to be glorified. And in their mind, they're thinking, okay, now's the time for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and to establish his reign and his rule by kicking out the Romans and constituting God's people as a free people in the promised land. That's where their minds no doubt went to. And and so they were thinking, okay, God's going to glorify himself or Jesus is going to be glorified by through power and through A moment of strength as he exiles Israel's enemies and so the disciples are pretty excited about that because they think well if Jesus is going to be glorified that's got to be good news for us too we're in his entourage so to speak so if things are things going to go well for him things must go well for us too so they get really excited about what Jesus is saying only to have Jesus just kind of pour a big bucket of cold water on their enthusiasm Because right after he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, immediately after that, Jesus ties his glory to his crucifixion. So he says in verse 23, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And when he says that, Jesus is making it clear, look, Yes, I'm going to be glorified, but the way I'm going to be glorified is through my crucifixion. That Jesus must be laid low before he is lifted high. That's kind of the rhythm of the gospel. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. It is this rhythm and this nature that says, you know, the way up in God's kingdom is always down. And so Jesus is going to be glorified, but the only way he will be glorified is by going to the cross and there being crucified but the disciples weren't thinking in those terms yet they weren't thinking according to that ethic of the kingdom of god in fact they they still believe that the way up is up it's interesting that around this same time in Luke's gospel the writer of that gospel tells us that a dispute actually arose among the disciples about who among them should be considered the greatest they began to talk about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God amongst themselves. Obviously, they're still thinking the way up is up. They're not thinking the way up is down. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus then responds in that moment. He says, look, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' mission, the reason he entered into the world was to serve his people. He says a very similar thing, or a very similar thing is said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45 where Jesus says the Son of Man had, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, Jesus is going to be glorified, but he's going to be glorified through his own crucifixion by going to the cross and there serving his disciples and by extension serving you and me. But not only was Jesus aware of this as he's setting up this moment where he's washing the disciples' feet, he's also aware of his identity You notice back in the passage, it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. This is reminding us that Jesus was completely aware of who he was. He knew where he had come from, right? He knew he was the Son of God. He was conscious of that reality. The Gospel of John would cue us into this at the very beginning of the Gospel. We're told that in the beginning of the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, we are told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and came into the world. Jesus knew where he came from. And then later in John chapter 3, verse 16, we are told that it was God who sent the Son. That for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Said so Jesus knew where he came from, and he knew he was the beloved son of the Father. And he also knew where he was going, which is why later in John chapter 17, Jesus would pray this prayer. He would pray for his disciples, but before he gets focused on them, look, listen to what he asks. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He knew where he came from. He knew he was the beloved Son of the Father, and he knew where he was going. He was aware of his mission, and he was aware of his identity. And it's interesting, the more you study the Gospels, and the more you kind of look into the life and ministry of Jesus, the more you find the importance of identity. Not only Jesus' identity, but the identity of those who would follow Jesus. It's so important that early on in Jesus' ministry, When he's tempted by Satan, Satan's strategy in trying to sidetrack Jesus from fulfilling his mission was to attack his identity. And so if you read the story of the temptations found in Matthew chapter 4, you're going to see the devil tempting Jesus by going after who he was. And he says two times in that exchange, if you are the son of God... In other words, if you are who you say you are, if you believe you actually are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, you are the second person of the Trinity. If you really are, and then he goes on, then turn these stones to bread. Turn these stones to bread. And then he tells Jesus, also, if you really are who you say you are, then go to the top of the temple and jump off. Surely the angels will sweep in and and catch you before you hit the ground. In other words, what the... What the enemy was tempting Jesus with in that moment was if you are who you say you are, then glorify yourself. Glorify yourself by turning these stones into bread. Glorify yourself by having the angels save you as you jump off the temple. Display your power was the only way the devil could think it was possible for Jesus to affirm his identity and for Jesus to be glorified. But you understand that had Jesus done that, Had Jesus sought to glorify himself in that way, he would have only served himself. He would have only served himself had he done that. Had he forgotten who he was. Had he forgotten his mission. Because his identity and his mission was moving towards serving people like you and me. And in the process of serving us, yes, he would be glorified. So here in John chapter 13, the enemy shows up again. And you find him conspiring with the sinful heart of Judas to to strip everything from Jesus. They're conspiring to betray Jesus and conspiring ultimately to humiliate Jesus. Let's humiliate the Son of God by having him betrayed. Let's humiliate him by having him crucified. Let's tear Jesus down. and, And all of a sudden, you're cued into a little bit about what pride is like. You see, pride thinks the only way up is up. Pride only thinks that the only way up is up. This is why proud people are so often comparing themselves to other people so that they can get a step up on them and scale the social ladder above them. Pride only, knows that the, or pride only thinks that the way up is up. And so someone as arrogant and as proud as Satan cannot see that the way up is down. But the irony of this is that by conspiring to have Christ crucified, do you understand what's happening? By conspiring to have Christ crucified, Satan and Jesus, Judas are actually contributing to him being glorified. Satan and Judas are actually going to glorify Jesus. I don't know how that lands on you. But it reminds us that every person on the planet will ultimately glorify Jesus in one way or another. Everyone's going to glorify Jesus. Even Satan and Judas would. And the irony of this moment is that precisely because Jesus is betrayed, precisely because he is crucified, he is stripped down on the cross, precisely because of that, everything will be given to him. The Father is going to honor the humble service of Jesus when he goes to the cross. And notice in the story again, John begins to recount the Savior's humble service, doesn't he? And he does it in remarkable detail when you look at verse 4. It says, after this, the table was set by by affirming Jesus' self-understanding or self-awareness, we're told that he got up from supper, he laid aside his outer clothing, and he took a towel, and he tied it around himself. It's a powerful drama. And if, again, you study the narratives of the gospel a little more closely, you'll see that Leading into Jerusalem, Jesus had already arranged for a colt to be set apart to take him into the city. He had taken care of that detail. And usually when there was a formal meal or a special meal like the one he and his disciples were sharing on that occasion, there would be a servant in the room prepared to wash the feet of all the travelers, of all the ones who would come there. Now, do you think Jesus just kind of overlooked that detail? If he arranged for a colt to carry him into the city... Surely he would have been competent enough to arrange a servant to be there to wash the feet of those who were at the meal, which was common courtesy. It was cultural expectation. Surely he would have done that unless he had something bigger in mind, unless he was arranging something else. He was arranging a moment to instruct his disciples about something very, very important. And so here you find Jesus putting on the clothes of a, of a servant, a servant, Assuming that posture, and then we are told that next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Now think about it. Here you have the Son of God who's fully aware of his identity. He's fully aware of his majesty. He knows where he comes from. He knows where he's going. He knows he's beloved by the Father. And yet here he is doing the work of a slave. He's bending down to wash the dirty, calloused, smelly feet of his disciples. And this is hard for me because I hate feet. I don't want anything to do with feet. And yet here, the Son of God is stooping low to cleanse his disciples' feet. Just imagine what they may have been thinking. Imagine, they must have been thinking as they watched Jesus do the work that was assigned only to a Gentile, a non-Jewish slave, as they were sitting there watching Jesus do this, none of them would have ever thought to stoop so low in humble service. None of them would have ever considered taking this role in that moment. They would have never stooped this low in humble service, but little did they know, little did they know that Jesus was willing to stoop much lower. Jesus was willing to go much lower. You know, the flow of details... The flow of details from Jesus getting up, laying aside, taking on, and serving. That flow of detail just kind of, it echoes a a hymn that outlines the gospel that was quite popular in the early church. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Let me show it to you. How much lower the Savior was willing to go. We are told in in this hymn, That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he got up. He got up and then he made himself nothing. He laid aside his deity. He took the form of a servant. What is that? That's taking on, right? He took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humble service. What I want you to see as you consider this story is that if you moralize it, you miss the point. This story is not designed to be moralized. It is designed to be internalized. That it's not primarily about you learning to serve. It's about you needing to be served. Saying this is the Savior. This is the one who's come to do for us what we would never think and never be able to do for ourselves. And so it throws everybody off in the room. Everybody's confused trying to figure out what do I make of Jesus' act in washing the disciples' feet? So much so that look at how Peter responds. And he responds the way the human heart so often responds when being served or when needing help. It responds proudly. Look at Peter's response. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He's dumbfounded by Jesus' actions. And Jesus answered him, what am I what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward, you will understand. But then Peter responds. He says, you will never wash my feet. And the language in the original is quite strong. He's, it's a double negative where he is insisting and insisting and insisting upon Jesus not washing his feet. Now you think about Peter's response and just kind of step back for a moment. You know, very, very often, In the teaching of Jesus, he takes a physical concept and he uses it as a launching off point to speak of something spiritual. You see this in John chapter 4 earlier, where Jesus is at a watering well and he meets a woman who's thirsty and he talks to her about her physical thirst, but then he uses that moment to turn her attention to her spiritual thirst and the living water that he has come into the world to bring. You think about John chapter 6, this moment where Jesus is feeding the multitudes physical food, performing a miracle to to fill their stomachs and to provide for that immediate need. But he doesn't just stop there. He uses that moment to call attention to the spiritual hunger he's come to satisfy, the spiritual hunger he's come to fulfill. So he says I so he refers to himself, I am the bread of life. Then you get into John chapter nine, very similar thing. Jesus heals a man born blind, his physical sight, and he uses that moment to connect the physical healing with the spiritual healing that he's come to bring into the world. And when you get into John chapter 13, I don't think that's changed. The issue in the story isn't, isn't just the cleaning of dirty feet. This is all a drama designed to show us how Christ has come to cleanse, to cleanse the human heart. He's come to cleanse our lives. And in order for that to happen, humility is required. You know, it's a hard thing for proud people to be served. It's even harder when the one who's serving is infinitely greater than us. This is why Charles Spurgeon, an old school cat back in the 19th century who pastored a church in England, he, in talking about the cross, he says, you know, had I been at the cross of Christ, I would have said, don't do this for me. Don't, don't tell me that I need something like that to be clean. Don't tell me that that is required for my salvation. Don't do that for me. It's too much. It's too big. And so our heart often responds to the gospel the way Peter responds, Jesus, you will never wash my, wash my feet. It's not needed, right? And here we begin to consider how if you're going to become a Christian, humility is required. You must humble yourself to become a Christian. You must realize your need, not just for the person of Jesus, as cool as Jesus is. You need the work of Jesus. You need the service of Jesus. You need his death on the cross for your sins. You can't become a Christian without humbly receiving his service, his work on your behalf. The reality is we can't cleanse ourselves by turning over new leaves, We can't cleanse ourselves by starting new chapters. We can't cleanse ourselves by moving cities or changing jobs or getting new friends. We can't cleanse ourselves by giving to charities. The gospel insists that we must humble ourselves and let Jesus serve us by cleansing us with his blood shed on the cross. This is why Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If you don't let me serve you, you can't be with me. This is my mission. This is why I'm here. Humility is required to become a Christian. But then Peter responds, so doesn't he? he, he kinda, Peter's just kind of a, an extreme personality moving from one side of the room to the next in a flash. And so he goes from saying, Lord, you will never wash my feet to basically, Jesus, give me a bath. If that is true, then I want you to do everything. I want you to wash every part of me. Get, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Just, just bathe me, Jesus. That's how extreme of a personality Peter tended to have. But you and I know, especially when you consider what Jesus says next, that it's not the part of his anatomy getting washed that matters. It's what this cleansing represented. The point is that Peter needed to learn to submit himself and be the recipient of Jesus' humble service. This is what Jesus clarifies. He says, One who is bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all are clean. Of course, in that moment, he's referring to Judas. Which again reminds us that the point isn't to have clean feet. The point is that Judas's feet are clean. That's not the issue. The point is to have a clean heart and his isn't. But according to Jesus, the others are. So what's going on here? How do you make how do you make sense of this, this explanation that Jesus is giving? And I would, I would try to do so this way. Let's say I shot you over an invitation to come over to my house for Thanksgiving dinner. Chances are you come over for Thanksgiving, a special meal in our culture, a, a holiday, and you come to share that moment. Chances are you're going to you're going to take a bath before you come, right? You're going to take a shower. Chances are you're not going to walk into my house and then go straight to my shower and start bathing yourself there. That, that would be weird. Don't, don't do that. If, if you're wondering what is American culture like, it's not like that, right? So don't, if you step into our home, don't go straight for the shower and take a bath. But it would be kind of expected of you that before you sat down and shared that meal with me that you'd go to the bathroom and you'd wash your hands, right? That'd be be courteous of you. That would be kind of you. We would be grateful for you to wash your hands, especially if you came to my house by public transit. Like, go wash your hands, please. That's the idea that, that I think we're getting after here. When you look back at the first century, this was the process of the first century that when you were to show up at a special meal such as the one that Jesus and the disciples were sharing together in this moment, And you showed up, it wasn't just cool for you to wash your hands, your your feet needed to be washed too, because chances are you traveled there on foot and you walked dusty roads to get there. And when you showed up, you are already clean in one sense, because you've had a bath, you've prepared yourself to come to that meal, but your feet need still need to be washed. Your feet need to be clean. And so what Jesus is getting after is this paradox of the Christian life that on one hand, those who humble themselves and are served by Jesus, on one hand, we are already clean, but there's a sense in which we are still being cleaned. We are still being cleansed. Essentially, what's happening in this story is that Jesus is planting a seed that blooms throughout the rest of the New Testament. And it relates to our self awareness and having been, you and I, have been brought into relationship with Jesus. And as a result of our relationship with Jesus, we are already clean, but we also know that there are parts of us that still need to be clean, that still need some work. And, In fact, when you move further in the gospel into John chapter 15, Jesus uses the analogy of a vine and branches to describe our relationship with him. And he says, if you are in relationship with me, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are spiritually connected, spiritually united with me. And in that moment, John chapter 15, verse 3, he says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So he's saying you've been declared clean. And this is what it means to be a Christian. When you are spiritually united with Christ, everything that is true of Christ becomes true of you. His life begins to pulse through your life. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. This is this all becomes true of you, and you are already clean as a result of your relationship with Christ. But at the same time, as long as you are living in this world, you have to embrace the tension between being already cleaned by Jesus, and still needing to be cleansed. It's a tension. It's a paradox. It's one that we don't try to resolve. It's one that we press into. And it's interesting, as you read through the New Testament, the same writer of the Gospel of John would, would put this tension to the church in 1 John chapter 1. In his little epistle called 1 John, listen to what he says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words... As long as we are living in this world, we will never outgrow our need for Jesus. We need Jesus every moment of every day. You don't become a Christian and then move on to something besides Jesus to account for your growth, to account for the life that you are living now. No, you sink into your relationship with him. Understand that you will never grow beyond your need for Jesus. So on one hand, yes, you were declared right, you were declared holy, you were declared clean as a result of the gospel, but at the same time, you are still being cleaned, you are still being sanctified, to throw that word, you are being transformed more and more into the people that Jesus has saved you to be. This is why when St. Bernard of Clairvaux was asked what the three most important Christian virtues are, he said the, the most important virtues of the Christian life are humility, humility, and humility. You don't grow beyond your need for Jesus. You must let Jesus serve you all the days of your life. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus gladly does. This is why he had that phrase at the beginning of John chapter 13, where he, where he talks about loving his disciples to the end, that he's going to love his disciples to the end. He's going to love you to the completion of your salvation. This is why you read in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That he's not going to give up on you. He's going to complete the work of saving you. He is serving you not only to start your relationship with him, he is serving you throughout the duration of your relationship with him. And one day, one day that work's going to be completed. And he's going to get all the glory for it because he's ultimately responsible for for it, He's promised himself to us in this kind of way. This is good news for people like us. So we want humility. We want humility to characterize our Christianity and to characterize our lives. But again, this type of humility is only generated when you and I begin to see the humility of Jesus and we begin to see how well he serves us. And when we are seeing it, when we are seeing it, when we're taking it in, thinking it through, when, we are, when this reality is being internalized by us, that's when Jesus' example in this story will become contagious. That's when humble service will start being demonstrated by us, not because we're serving Jesus, but because we're serving one another like Jesus. This is where Jesus goes next in verse 12. He says, When Jesus had, finished their, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on... His outer clothing. He reclined again and said to them, "Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, now don't don't think you already have the rest of it. Uh, chances are, as the disciple are hearing Jesus say that, they they may have been thinking, okay, well, I know what he's going to say next. If if Jesus has washed our feet, then we should wash wash Jesus's feet, right? We should respond by washing his feet. He's washed us, let's, let's wash them. But that's not what he says. That's not what he says because that doesn't take humility. It doesn't take humility necessarily to serve Jesus. Many of us would stand in a line a mile long to wash the feet of Jesus and then we're going to go brag about it on social media We're going to post some pictures on Instagram. We're going to post some pictures on Facebook. And we're going to brag about all the things that we do for Jesus. It doesn't necessarily require humility to serve Jesus because he's greater than us. It takes humility to serve people who in your flesh you think aren't greater than you. It takes humility to be served by Jesus. And it takes humility to serve others like Jesus. This is why he goes on. And he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. In other words, if you are internalizing these realities... You're taking the gospel in. You're thinking the gospel through. You are going to be blessed as you turn it out, as humble service begins to characterize your relationship with other people. And now there's a challenging word here because there's a temptation. Okay, you hear Jesus saying, I've given you an example, now follow it. Now when you think about following Jesus' example, it's very important that you don't think about following his example in just some generic way, some impersonal way. You know, last week, my kids watched Kung Fu Panda, and ever since, my two-year-old Adeline has been walking around the house, modeling and imitating Kung Fu Panda, just punching the air, punching me. She's kind of dangerous nowadays because of Kung Fu Panda. She's following the example of what she saw, but understand that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. Why? Kung Fu Panda did not save Adeline. Adeline. There's no personal connection between what Kung Fu Panda did in that movie and what my daughter experiences on a day-to-day basis. So she's imitating, she's following his example, but it's an impersonal example. It's one that has no bearing on her life and her status. When the Bible talks about you and I imitating Jesus and following Jesus' example, it's not in some generic way, it's we are following in the example of what he has done for us. It is a personal experience with Jesus that leads to us imitating Jesus and following in his example. So Jesus would say elsewhere, you are to forgive other people just as I have forgiven you. Why do we forgive? Because we've experienced forgiveness. We are treating people the way we've been treated personally by Jesus. And so when we talk about following his example and imitating Jesus, understand that our, when we do so, we're doing so saying, this is my glad and grateful response to how you, Jesus, have treated me, how you, Jesus, have served me. And because you've treated me like this, I'm going to treat others like this. Because you've forgiven me like this, I'm going to forgive others like this. Because you have served me like this, I'm going to serve others like this. It's a personal connection that leads to our imitation. It's that context of our union with Jesus It's the fact that Jesus has dealt personally with us in these ways. And so he tells the disciples, how I have served you is how you are to serve one another. And this means a few things for us, and I'll just put them out there for you to consider. As this story kind of drives towards this type of application, I think one, it means we must recognize that the church is ground zero for our humble service. We've got to recognize that the church is ground zero for our humble service. This is what notice the emphasis in John chapter 13 is on the disciples serving one another. It's an intramural call. It's you are to serve each other. The church becomes ground zero for humble service. Now that doesn't mean that we serve one another to neglect of the needs around us in the world. It doesn't mean that at all. Just as when Jesus says in, or just as it says in verse one that Jesus loved his own, that doesn't mean that Jesus loved his own to the exclusion of the world. John 3.16 is still in the Bible. But the way God is loving the world is by loving his own who will engage the world. And the way you and I are going to serve the world is by first serving one another, by washing each other's feet. The church becomes ground zero for humble service because in our relationships with each other, we learn to serve. We learn to love. We learn to bear with each other as need be. This is why if you drop down to verse 34 in John chapter 13, Jesus says, I've given you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know? Because you're loving each other. How are they going to know? Because you're serving each other. The church becomes ground zero for humble service. Not to the neglect of the world, but actually for the sake of the world. So let me ask you, how are you serving our faith family? How are you serving our faith family? What ministry team are you a part of? What ministry team have you been thinking and praying about joining? And the application for you is to join the team. Is to get involved in serving the body, make the church ground zero for your humble service. Step into one of our various ministry teams, from how we gather together on Sundays to how we engage in social justice issues in the city to how we show hospitality to one another. Maybe application for you is to open up your home and to host a new missional community and that's how you need to serve our faith family. Or stepping in and leading a new missional community, giving us the opportunity to partner with you and starting a new time for disciples to gather together and to study the scriptures and to love one another and to from there go out and serve their neighborhoods and serve the city. The church is ground zero for humble service too. It means that we must never consider ourselves too important to do what's needed We must never consider ourselves too important to do what's needed. You know, there are people in our faith family who wash our feet week in and week out. They all have schedules. They all have busy lives. They all have other responsibilities, but they come early. They stay late. They don't consider themselves too important to do what's needed, so they clean bathrooms, and they change diapers in our kids' ministry. They push brooms. They move chairs. They, they wash our feet by preparing this space for us to gather in and, and enjoy Jesus together by studying the scriptures and singing songs. They're washing our feet. And to be honest with you, we need to wash theirs too. We need to wash theirs too by thanking them for what they do. And we need to wash their theirs too by joining them in what they're doing and providing relief and support to all the things that go into our gathering together in this capacity on Sundays. We must never consider ourselves too important to do what's needed. Everybody's got other responsibilities outside of this time and outside of this space. Everybody has other things that they could be doing. But we don't want to put ourselves above those who are washing our feet. We want to come and engage them in that ministry Because again, the church is ground zero for our humble service. And then three, what this means for us is that we need to know what we are about in this world. We need to know our shared mission. You see, later Jesus will say, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you. Just as the Father sent Jesus into the world to serve the world, there is a sense in which Jesus is now sending his church, his disciples into the world to serve the world. We need to know what we are about in this world and refuse to get sidetracked. We have been called and commissioned by Jesus to engage the world in loving, humble service to make disciples of all nations. We are called by Jesus to cross cultures and subcultures in service of the gospel. We want to know what we are about in this world so we can make the most of our time in this world. And so we want to do what Jesus has called us to do. We want to humbly serve the world in which we live. We want to advance the gospel in word and deed and humble service and then forth We need to know who we are in this world. We need to know our shared identity. You see, when Jesus took up his towel and washed the feet of his disciples, he hadn't forgotten who he was. He knows exactly who he is. And because he knew who he was, I think that liberated him to serve in such a humble way. You see, a proud refusal to be served and a proud refusal to serve is a mark of an insecure identity. But because Jesus knew exactly who he was, he was willing to stoop as low as possible in the service of his disciples. He wasn't worrying about losing any dignity in their eyes. He wasn't worried about them not treating him the way that he deserved to be treated because of who he was. That wasn't his concern in that moment. He was other-oriented, serving his disciples. And you and I want to consider how when we know who we are in this world, and we remember who we are in Christ, all of a sudden we're liberated to serve in the most humble ways possible. We're liberated to serve because we're not living to get praise from people. We're not living to get approval from people. We're not serving so that everyone sees us and so that everybody recognizes us. We're serving because we serve. We're serving because we've been served by Jesus And so we want to consider who we are. We want to remember that we are the beloved children of God in this world. We are the body of Christ. We are the visible kingdom of the invisible God. We are the tangible examples of the gospel's transforming power. We are the new society of Jesus who recognizes that the way up is down. Therefore, we stoop to serve. We do not consider ourselves too important. We do not consider ourselves above what Christ has called us to do. No, we press in and we serve humbly because Jesus has humbly served us let's pray heavenly father would you give us grace to consider these truths i pray that you would help us to think well about this story and to see how you serve us jesus before we start thinking about how we can serve each other but i do pray that we would make that transition that we'd make that turn and that we would become a humble community that humbly serves one another and that humbly serves the city of Seattle, I pray that you would give us grace to know how you would have us do that and what we can do, what what feet we can wash around us. Jesus, would you open our eyes to see needs and would you compel our hearts to meet those needs just as you, Jesus, have met and continue to meet our our needs all the days of our life. God, we love you and we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.